0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is
1: Burce Celik.
0: Burce, it's wonderful to see you surrounded by beautiful pot plants, a <laughs> lovely looking rug, and a fantastic kind of social realist feminist poster behind you. Have I got that right?
1: Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on your show.
0: Oh, it's exciting. It's great. So tell me what's on your mind these days? what's preoccupying you slash what are you working on?
1: So I'm very much interested in um in the epistemological power of history <laughs> these oh, days so. <laughs> so yeah,
0: some of us are interested in football like bashiitas, but others have <laughs> you know lighter things to think about apparently
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean um. So that's my sexy version of like uh my you know <laughs> how I talk about my interest, but seriously, I am very much interested in sure. history these days and what history can teach us like um um so uh for instance, in relation to um uh miseries in Palestine, I'm very much interested in historicizing these things, you know the uh I believe that like history can teach us like, uh, new things and can challenge the ways in which we think about issues like media and communication that we are very much interested in. So that's what I'm doing these days. I just um, wrote a book which was published very recently on the history of communications um, in Turkey and the Ottoman Empire. And I'm doing some other work around these issues.
0: That's exciting. So I have no financial interest in the book, but tell us the title, please.
1: The title is Communications in Turkey and the Ottoman Empire A Critical History.
0: Wow. And who's the publisher?
1: Uh, Illinois University Press. So they oh. have this like Geopolitics of Information series. So, yeah, so it was Fantastic. published by, by that. Great series.
0: press. And the Ottoman Empire takes us back. A century, a little over a century to the, I guess, the official end of the Ottoman Empire. Mm. Is that when the book ends or does it keep going with Turkey after the empire?
1: Mm. So it starts from uh, the late uh, period of the Ottoman Empire. So it's like um, 1830s when, um, you know, uh, many things are happening at the time in the Ottoman Empire. One of them is like, you know, empire is faced with European imperialism. Um, uh, very, uh, forcefully and, um, they had to change many things and, uh, bringing or modernizing their communication systems was one of them. Um, so I start my story starts from there and then ends, um, uh, the, the late, uh, Erdogan empire. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, uh, uh a, a long, durée history of almost like, um, uh, you know, from 1830 to 2016. So
0: more than a century. Almost 200 years. Yeah. I'm very interested in what electrical devices he has in place to keep his hair the way it is, Erdogan. Oh, (laughs) yeah, well. (laughs) But in all seriousness, so back to the 1830s, and you're saying that there's a modernization of communications, what did that entail?
1: Yeah, so, I mean... um... Many things were happening at the time in the Ottoman Empire obviously so it was like you know by the uh, by the early 19th century it's a huge empire from like uh, eastern Europe to North Africa to uh to the Middle East um I mean what we call Middle East today and um so but the the power of the uh, imperial you know center was like very limited so um you know the peripheries were really decentralizing um a lot and communication modern communication was one way of like bringing sort of like control over the empire mm-hmm. but also um you know the the empire was uh creating producing its own modernity because of the geopolitical push coming from europe and also from uh you know within within the empire through nationalism and, and stuff so, I mean, my, what I'm trying to do in, in the book, I guess, is that like, you know, when we shift the, the typical historical narrative about media and communication, as you know, like, uh, the, the main, uh, empirical ground for media and communication history is US or Britain. So it's, it's very much like Anglo history. And we just, um, so based on the historical narrative, you have theoretical you know concepts and then those theoretical concepts become universalized um and even when like uh, uh, people like me from the global south want to understand their own communicative structures they use those um yeah. uh, theoretical constructs to understand theirs but that's that doesn't really work so what i'm trying to show is that like for instance yes you talk about public sphere in the english context But there in the Ottoman Empire, there was something else. It was public. It was public communication, but it was something else, you know. So, um, and I don't, I I refuse to call it public sphere. I call it public space and uh, it has its own, you know, characteristics. So that's what I'm trying to do from the very early on. Oh, wow.
0: Well, you know, the romantic accounts of the counter-public sphere that you get in the work of Terry Eagleton or Jürgen Habermas Mm. generally miss out the fact that these... Emergent members or members of the emergent British bourgeoisie were sitting around in coffee shops reading Mm. political magazines while waiting for slave boats to deliver their bounty. Um, And this romantic notion of the middle class coming to power just entirely leaves out how, in the case of Britain, its complete economy was based on slavery. Exactly. It wouldn't even exist as a wealthy country today without it. Yeah. Uh, Can I ask you a, a rather stupid question? if I may, which is not to say my other questions have not been stupid. But technologically. <laughs> you never
1: ask stupid questions, Toby.
0: <laughs> from the 1830s on, this time of modernization in the face of the immense scope of the empire, but also the imperial threats from Europe, what's happening technologically with the forms of communication between center and periphery?
1: Um, so in terms of technology, um, so what's happening is that like um, – telegraph lines are being uh, laid and it's it's interesting there's also sort of like um, geopolitical rivalry and tension between the the empire and the um, European powers as you know at the time uh, Europe um, you know Britain and France um, and others like um, consider uh, Ottoman empires they call it eastern question eastern problem so it's uh, it's decaying and how to you know, carve out like uh, lands um, um, uh, for for themselves. That's the that's the main uh, issue. So, and one of the other things, of course, for Britain is to have the connection between London and uh, India, uh, Bombay at the time of like Indian muti- uh, mutiny. So, um, so they want to lay these like telegraph lines uh, across uh, uh, Ottoman Empire. It starts around uh, um, uh, the the war in Crimea. Um, but then quickly, Ottoman Empire wants to just like uh, decides to own their own uh, um um you know cables. So one of the key uh technological things in in the sense that like we understand telecommunication were the telegraph and and the cables. But of course, postal communication. I talk a lot about postal communication and newspapers. So because, um, I'm not taking a sort of like medium specific approach, but I just try to develop a holistic approach. So they're all integrated, um, into each other. So, um, at the time, you know, like, um, from the 1870s, um, some centers in the empire start to use telegraph. Um, and by, by the end of 19th century, many places have their own Um, you know print media
0: but presumably Istanbul and other centers are getting worried about the Europeans yeah this stage yes and are there defense applications involved in the telecommunications system as it's emerging
1: um defense application in in the sense that they, like in the sense that they want to uh, create their own like uh ownership structure it's there from from almost the beginning you know like um uh you know 1850s 60s you see uh the the beginning of these discussions but they are worried of course and um you know like the typical orientalist historical writing um uh see the the ottoman management uh, and bureaucracy which was called port uh, until the um you know abdülhamid um, um came to power um they they see that like as if these people did not really know what they were doing they didn't understand what modernity is they didn't understand technology uh um, you know the the typical sort of like orientalist islamophobic discourse was also pertinent and historical writing about this era um and but but they 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 knew that this was going to be an imperial weapon um and at least some of them knew and then they they wanted to change the policy accordingly but um they were also like worried about the nationalism in the empire yeah so uh, and how, uh, for instance, like uh, by the end, by the mid 19th century, European um, um, powers have their own post offices in different places. This is also the case in China and Persian, uh, you know, Persian Empire. And they're worried about it. And Abdul Hamid, for instance, want, wants to start a boycott campaign against the the postal offices, foreign postal offices, and saying that. Like these uh, office, you know, postal networks are not only carrying, you know, like um, uh, magazines, letters and stuff, but they're also carrying weapons. Which is true, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so there's there's always this, this um, um, you know, diplomatic and also other forms of tensions and mm-hmm. struggle.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about <laughs> telephony? Uh, is the telephone becoming important at at some point, because one of the things that happens, for example, in France, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, is that telephony moves from being essentially a governmental tool, something for the military and for administrators, to being something that journalists use. Mm. It becomes a means of gathering information, gathering reportage, and so on. So Mm. what's its trajectory in terms of the Ottoman Empire?
1: So the telephony, like, uh, it, it, uh, um, comes during, like, uh, Hamid, Abdul Hamid's, um, uh, period, uh, which Erdogan loves and, uh, you know, uh, finds inspirations in his governance. <laughs> um, so, but, uh, he's like, um, He's known to be very paranoid and he he has this like very well developed surveillance system uh, in the empire, like there are people in coffee houses, for instance, like um, 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 recording what people are talking about, because that's that's one of the, you know, coffee houses are main spaces where people do political deliberation. There are like, uh, spies in the marketplaces and, uh, metaphors and stuff like that. And they're also checking everything in the postal, uh, uh, communication, but telephony he likes because he likes technology in general. Um, uh, you know, the Ottoman, uh, um, rulers were very much fond of like technological innovations. But the thing is like, uh, he, you know, there is, less possibility to control telephonic communication,
0: so he bans it. You know, it's interesting you're you're mentioning Islam and technology because it reminds me of the way in which books about development in the 50s and 60s Mm. would blame what was seen as India's underdevelopment on Hinduism, Mm. whereas now it's right-wing Hindus (laughs) who almost run the world of technology. Oh, yes. You know, many of whom got their opportunities because, A, they could speak English, but, B, there was massive state investment in all these technology institutes after liberation from the British. So they've had to drop all of that from the development literature, mm. that anti-Hinduism, but they've maintained it with reference to Islam. It's absolutely true in mm. talking about the in, you know the failure, in commas, of Pakistan or or Bangladesh or even Indonesia. To hmm. in commerce, developed. It's always it's blamed on numerous things but one factor often is that there is a problem with Islam adopting new technology. So I think that shibboleth is still very, very much alive um, hmm. as you say, it's part of the epistemology of history and of communications history in particular but it's absolutely there at the heart of development studies hmm. as yeah. unreconstructed. So <clears throat> The decision is we can't use that. We can't create a spy network to to monitor telephony. So we'll just fucking stop people from using it. <laughs>
1: exactly. And just... Yeah. Well, that's why he did uh, uh, for for a time. But of course, like when you look at um, um, archival documents in the Ottoman uh, um, official doc, you know, documentation archive, like it's um, there's there's constant like um you know struggle because uh, they want to they want to ban it but they can't ban it right so people um just have their you know telephone lines from their uh, offices to the church for instance or from uh, from home to to offices the bourgeoisie of course but um they're used yeah telephony becomes really uh integrated into everyday life um you know, during Cold War period, t- thanks to NATO, you know, and um, uh, uh, and central uh, connections, you know. So that's the that's another thing that I am tracing in the book: the militarization of communications.
0: Right, right, which is absolutely crucial in terms of telegraphy. You know, we wouldn't have an internet without the British Empire and its obsession with laying down cables that had stolen from Malaysia. Um, yeah, you know, in order for the internet, not, well, for telegraphy to work, but now for the internet to work, right? Yeah. um And I know this goes outside the scope of your book, but obviously part of your mm-hmm. operation. So radio isn't happening until after the Ottoman Empire, right? It's it's really getting going. I mean, the first radio station in the US was literally a century ago. Mm. Um, oh, and by the way, before I forget, of course, the US all of telecommunications is part of military activity from telegraphy to telephony to radio to whatever
1: absolutely so yes
0: these militaristic applications or they're not even applications they're points of origin Mm, so your book isn't going to be covering radio it essentially pretty much ends in 1917 is that right
1: uh, no I, it it does actually be, be, um uh so the, the the ottoman empire is just one chapter but um the 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 first chapter but then it continues like until 2016. um 16, oh, 16 so.
0: I'm sorry you told me yeah oh, God. Oh, God, <laughs> i apologize of the,
1: the, yeah the thing is like um uh radio is is part of it uh, well i mean the 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 ancestor of radio is wireless technology and it starts in um, um, around like um, uh, early 20th century. For instance, like the the Italian-Ottoman war, during Italian-Ottoman war, Ottomans used wireless technology. Um, um, radio uh, comes with uh, uh, Kemalist Republic. They, they look at Soviets and how they use uh, radio and then uh, they adopt radio as a sort of like pedagogic medium, you know, for the modernizing and secularizing state power.
0: As you know, I'm an unreconstructed chemist, even though (laughs) it's very hard (laughs) to defend. (laughs) But um, one of the dreams that Bertolt Brecht had Mm. for radio and actually was realized in Australia at the same time, in the late 20s, early 30s, was that trade unions started radio stations Mm. that were two-way. You would have a play being broadcast with parts for the workers in factories to participate in and they would Mm. answer back and that would become part of the broadcast. Mm. Did any of that happen uh, under uh, the Kemalists two-way or was it all one-way pedagogy Mm. per the Soviet model that you mentioned?
1: So I mean it's interesting because Kemalism is like Leninism, uh, Gandhism, you know, like uh, so they were once upon a time the god of like uh, everything, and then they were just like oh they're they're responsible for the all all wrongdoings in those countries, like by you know especially those uh, people who critiqued modernization processes in these countries. So during Kemalist period, you don't really see that sort of like two way. Uh, communication in, in radio, but they, you know, um, they create new forms of like communicative hubs, like people houses, people rooms, village institutes. So I, I consider them as communicative establishments. I mean, you also see those things like in, in China, in Bulgaria, uh, at the time, but, um, they're using some kind of like John Dewey kind of, um, uh, understanding of, um experiential um uh knowledge and uh you know um uh, and approaching communication as such so those um, um, um establishments are placed in rural Turkey in countryside and people do radio make radio for instance in village uh, institutes the kids um uh girls and boys together it's very also important for for a Muslim country. Um and um they create their own like sort of uh communicative spaces. But um going back to Bertolt Brett, it's uh, uh I was just writing, I'm writing a chapter these days about um you know US um um Middle Eastern um uh relationship in terms of like militarization of communications. So at the time uh, in during during early cold war period Bertolt bret uh, writes um uh, nazim Mehmet, who was known to be uh, uh, as like the greatest o- uh, poet of turkish uh, um history and he's communist and he was exiled on um uh, soviet um, um empire and then there, you know bret um, uh, celebrates his um, um his writings and he, he's, you know, Hikmet at the time and, and his friends, they're, they're um, um, doing this like radio programming for Turkey and they're reading um, letters from the audience and even their, you know, like um, poetry. And Hikmet talks about them, comments, and they're like, he's like, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> this is so The workers' is an ex-
0: poetry, ordinary citizens' poetry. Yes. The greatest poet in the country in exile. He's remarking on the quality of what they do. How fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, that's very moving. Well, yes, Brecht was an amazing and a truly amazing person, I think. And I always feel sad for people like him who sort of bought the Soviet line, the East German line in his case,
1: Mm. at the
0: same time as I feel as though they have extraordinary resonance around the world, and it's it's not just a kind of Western European heritage. It's much mm. more interesting than that, I think. Mm. Yeah. So okay, so radio um, is that is happening that way with this centralised modernising impulse, but interestingly enough, as you say, with a decentralised no- set of nodes mm. and. That's interesting. You know, something similar happens in France a bit later with their houses of culture. Mm
1: -hmm. In the
0: French model, it's very much we are going to bring culture to the peasantry because Mm -hmm. still millions of peasants in France. What becomes different, at least in the attempts, the ideas in socialist Cuba, Nicaragua, Mm -hmm. Chile in the 60s and 70s, is that these be Houses of culture that are two-way in their operation. Mm. So indigenous people, speaking different languages with different forms of cultural expression and so on, quite apart from language, are bringing their knowledge, their views of the world back to the centre. Mm. Right. So they they tried to transform the from the centre to the periphery model that the French had. Yeah. Is there any of that going on in? these communication spaces yeah. that you described
1: yeah so what happens is I mean I don't want to portray Kemalism as a sort of like very progressive you know like ideology although you are Kemalist <laughs> but like um uh, but um so they wanted to sort of like um you know uh indoctrinate uh, the local people um about the uh, sort of the fantasy of Turkish modernization, definitely through these communicative structures. But when these things are actually happening in these um, um, uh, countryside, when uh, uh local people start going to these places, they bring their own um, you know, demands, aspirations, grievances, and etc. So so therefore, you know, even the design was for something else. They really created an interesting communicative structure. Many of the, you know, like writers, intellectuals, poets, um, um, mostly socialist, feminist of the 1960s, 50s, uh, were raised in those, like, um, uh, village institutes. They wrote for, um, um, people, house and rooms publications. So it really. Um, had tremendous impact. And you know what happened um, when Turkey decides to align with the US, um, you know, after the Second World War, uh, the, the, the new government, uh, the liberal, right wing liberals, uh, whose mission was like to Americanize uh, the country. Uh, they shut down all these, um, uh, um, you know, village houses and people houses because religious institutes and people houses because they said that, like, they do nothing but uh, cultivate uh, socialist, communist uh, ideology and un-Turkish culture. Yeah, so.
0: Un-Turkish culture. Fantastic. Yeah, we mustn't yeah. of that.
1: And instead you start to have, sorry, like uh, Islamic charities, anti-communism associations... That replace these uh, uh, communicative hubs in the in the rural areas.
0: Interesting. And radio in the fifties and sixties is very centralized.
1: Mm-hmm. It is and centralized.
0: And state owned or no?
1: Yeah, state owned. I mean, like the the privatization starts like just like the rest of uh, you know the. Rest of the global south starts in like 1990s, uh, with you know the wave of neoliberalization. Uh, until then, it's always state on, but it's it's interesting, like 1950s and 60s. Um, you see, um, uh, there is a huge infrastructural investment, uh, in Turkey, and because Turkey is picked as a sort of key country for Middle Eastern, uh, defense system uh by the US, so they uh and NATO. They they establish all these uh radio link systems, mi- microwave systems and etc. And they have um you know Voice of America, they have Radio Europe and, and stuff like that. But also Soviets do the same. So there is very strong um, you know, transmission of ra- uh, Soviet radios and the radio that I just mentioned, Nas Mikmet and his friends, like, um, uh, established that radio station, thanks to Soviets, of course. And Nasser, on the other hand, you have uh, Egyptian radio. So there's another, a lot happening.
0: Another one of my, you know, macho modernizing heroes. I've got
1: a <laughs> yeah.
0: macho men, I guess... Kemal Ataturk is um, is the first one historically.
1: Yeah.
0: And then there's, you know, Lazaro Cárdenas in Mexico and, mm. and Krumah in Ghana and mm. Nehru in India and Nasser yeah. in Egypt, I guess is the last one in my pantheon yeah. of, you know, man crushers of mm. these, you know, macho in many ways dictatorial men. Mm. But who did amazing things? I think.
1: Mm.
0: What about religion on radio?
1: Yeah, I mean the the Kemalists uh, were very sort of like. Um, uh, I mean, of course, Kemalists are, were not a homogeneous group. Uh, when um, you know Mustafa Kemal was alive, and there's so many versions of Kemalism. Uh, I'm a so, good
0: one, right? I'm the yeah, good you. Are,
1: you are a good one. <laughs> You belong to the good ones. But there are like leftist interpretations of it. And in, in 1960s and 50s, 70s, like all these um, uh, progressive socialists were like communists, you know, because they they adopted the idea of unconditional independence and, um, um, you know, liberation, which was also, um, you know, very prominent in Nasserism. And I don't think that they're so different from, you know Kamalism and Nasserism they're a form of like you know populist modernist and non-capitalist um um ideas ideologies so yeah so the um the the Kamal wh- what was your question
0: sorry i i know i because i <laughs> I'm going through my man crush phase. I'm
1: oh yeah yeah the, the
0: I'm, I'm machos. Start, I was asking about religion on radio.
1: Oh yeah yeah the religion. So yeah, they didn't really like um um the sort of, uh, I mean the left wing or the s- more statist uh, Kemalist, They didn't really approach uh, religion as sort of like public element of uh you know public life. Uh, but they uh tried to push it to uh private realm. Um, and radio or, uh, uh, or Kemalist publications in the early Republican period don't really cover religion that much. It starts with, again, like the uh, Cold War period with the uh, alignment, uh, with the U.S. Um, so you see like the, you know, emergence of Islamic charities, Islamic media. Uh, in nineteen fifties like a boom happens because the media is also commodified and you see all these right wing um and Islamist Turkist you know um newspapers uh establishments they're doing conferences and stuff. So and then Islam becomes a huge thing. Increasingly.
0: Yeah it's interesting to to trace the way in which US influences Bush Islam against yeah. Marxism, Leninism, you know. So Pakistan is favoured massively over India by the yeah. United States throughout the Cold War, as you know, because India yes. is being too socialist. And the Pakistanis wake up in 1989, 1991, and suddenly their boyfriends left them, but he never told them. And one of the problems in U.S.-Pakistan relations ever since is that it was so obviously, as always with the United States, as with all empires, a marriage of convenience mm-hmm. and once they felt they didn 't need a bullock against Marxism and Leninism, and they just abandoned Pakistan but yet but it is one of these instances where you can see a real link between NATO and the rise of islam mm-hmm. I mean the Turkish example anyway, yeah. so that happens with radio that 's fascinating. What about television, the rise of television? And also the place of religion in television.
1: Mm. Well, yeah, it, it starts television for a very long time. I, there are two technologies that came late to um, to Turkey. Uh, one of them is telephone that we just spoke about, and the other one is television. So it starts like in the you know mid nineteen um, sixties after the first coup military intervention. You know, Turkey is one of those countries where you see like repeated military intervention like Argentina and some other Latin American countries. I mean, um, for my book, I was doing a research and um, um, I I came across with this um, uh, uh, research like that counted the military interventions that happened during Cold War period, uh, more than 300 coups. And um, uh, most of them are condoned or supported by the U.S. and some of them by by so, um, um, so that's uh, one of the things. Turkey was one of those countries. So they established uh, public service, the coup makers in 1960. They established the um radio and television institution as a public service uh, broadcasting institution. And they have the monopoly until 1990s. And religion is again, like the, 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 typical Kemalist sort of like, uh, line, you know, like it's, it's something private. We are all Muslims and it's Sunni, yeah. Like that's the other thing. So it was not really secular in that sense because there are so many, like a uh, big population of Alevi population in Turkey. Uh, but, um, um, yeah, the, the, the main, even Kemalist conception of Islam was like Sunni. Um, and. So the first Islamic television starts in the nineteen nineties with a satellite connection. Um the Islamist Party at the time and the the capitalists in Germany that are connected to Islamic movement, they um raise money through Islamic charities and they start the first television uh uh um as um in connection to uh, Istanbul municipality when Erdogan was the was the elected mayor. So Islam always loved technology. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure.
1: Yeah. And the internet. And the internet. So the yeah, the internet um well, I mean, the internet is also like 1990s. It comes, um, uh, yeah, and, uh, changes, uh, uh, many things, but also, you know, um, it's a continuation of the militarization and, and, uh, all the other, um, uh, things. One of the key things, and I guess like in countries like Turkey, uh, is that, they also have this colonial kind of relationship with their own minorities. Right. So, um, so there's always this, this um, um, desire, ambition to, you know, to modernize, to, to make um, uh, the best technological, you know, advancements. And at the same time, there's always this fear of like, if, if we really get you know, big in this, if we really allow people to communicate freely, then Kurds will also do it. So there's, the internet was also um, um, arranged in such a way that like, you know, there is always this component of the development of Kurdish public communication. So
0: actually I've got a couple more questions I'd like to ask. And then if we can conclude with my offering you the chance to mention anything that we've not discussed that you'd like to include. So, I wanted to ask you about 1913 mm. and Armenia
1: mm.
0: and how that is covered or discussed in the media or what communication systems become relevant to that story.
1: Mm. So 1915, I mean, like, the, the that's the, the genocide, uh, uh, period was also, you know, marked as, uh, in the Armenian discourse too. So it's very interesting, you know, uh, I was just reading, uh, Priya Satya's, like, uh, piece on the empire. So how the, the age of empire in the sense that, like, Ottoman empire and then you have British empire and American empire. Is there no difference? In relation to the question of Palestine, you know, Palestine was um, uh, was part of the colonized by Ottoman Empire and then Britain and etc. But she's saying that like there is a fundamental difference because one is capitalistic, you know, the uh, the British and uh, American and Ottoman Empire was not. But they uh, in the in the encounter with the European imperialism, they also developed these like very oppressive. Uh, understandings of, um, uh, governing, managing populations. So, so genocide is, is one of those things that, uh, um, took place in the early 20th century, which is still not recognized by Turkish Republic. Um, um, in, you know, by the young Turks, um, who controlled the government at the time, um, And with the fear of losing more land, because uh, the Ottoman Empire shrank already to a sort of like little Asiatic state at the time, and um, they exiled, they killed, and, um, um, you know, horrific. So telegraph was key to the management of, uh, of the ethnic cleansing uh And trains were also um interesting to that, but interestingly um there was uh, you know when young Turks came to power after the revolution um nineteen eleven um so there were many armenians in the in the management, and there was this uh, minister who looked after postal telegraph and telephony communication of the empire. And he travels around uh, the empire, especially the the east, and he is um, um, the the populist of the time, Armenian populist. So they, um, you know, they were part of it. So he was pivotal to to modernize the telegraphic networks that were then used for the organization of the genocide.
0: And so I realize that I have sorry two more questions. I said two before, <laughs> but I have three. The next question is about the Kurds, yeah. You mentioned and their situation today, in in terms of these communications issues.
1: Mm. It's uh, incredibly suppressed. Uh, it's like you know the, but as you know, I, I'm trying to um, prove it in in my book too because. Um, Many times, the, the history of the Middle East, the history of Ottoman Empire, the history of Turkey is written by excluding Kurds, you know, it's just, uh, but if if we are truly the colonial, then like, uh, uh, you know, we need to um, um, not add, but just show how constitutive the role of the Kurds uh, has been for the development of communications and media in Turkey, so uh so the, the 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 role of Kurds or the silencing of Kurds in internet was not something new. It has always been there. But um Kurds always fought back, you know, the Kurdish movement fought back, Kurdish movement fought back through satellite technologies, uh through uh uh through internet uh and etc. When I was doing ethnographic research with Kurdish youth in uh in the early two thousand tens. There was a different environment because there was peace talks. Um, and, uh, the Kurds, the young Kurds were like, you know, using the internet, uh, for, 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 for many sort of like political, um, mobilizations, um, uh, uh, deliberate, you know, political deliberations and, and stuff. And then it changed, of course, because now like, um, you know, they put everyone in, in, in jail just, just because they criticise Erdogan uh, on social media. So, so it's horrible, really. Absolutely.
0: And so my last question before I open it up to you is about sources. Hmm. How did you find all this stuff out? Not so much about the period, say, from the 60s, but going back to the 1830s. were yeah. Were the Ottomans like all empires, obsessive and assiduous about noting everything they did?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, I love archives, T- Toby. I mean, I just love spending time in archives, like physically, uh, digitally, a- everywhere, because it's like, um, you know, I feel like a detective, okay, so I'll find this uh, file and then this one and then make the connection. <laughs> so I, I really love that. Um but yeah, Ottomans were um you know making sort of records of the things of the events, but it would be like a um um you know interesting comparison to compare like Ottoman documents with British documents for instance in the in the nineteenth century, so Britons were so vigilant and uh detailed uh so they would give the full name of every person that they were and stuff like that in ottomans they would say someone from uh uh britain uh monsieur miller uh but they would also uh, uh, write it in uh, in their own sort of like pronunciation so you 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 have to take like <laughs> you know a lot of time to understand what this person is who you know but they they have uh, archives I, I use those things Fantastic. I used um, Ottoman archives, British, U.S. archives.
0: And so finally, is there anything, Borce, that we haven't discussed that you'd like to mention about your work or anything you'd like to add, read the topics that we have mentioned?
1: Well, I think we covered a lot. It was a very nice conversation. Um, yeah, I think like... Um, uh, I, I assume that like many of your listeners um, are students, graduate students and the people who work in these areas. So I, what I would like to say is that like, you know, we really need to take history seriously, Um, you know, to if we really want to change the, you know, challenge with centric ideas. Uh, if we want to be creative, I think history is, is really important. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Porce, and um, I hope that you'll come back to the pod soon for another session, yeah?
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Toby.